So what does that say if we're all uh, experiencing this kind of schizophrenia, uh, which means split mind? Um, what's real, what's not real? You know, uh, the media keeps telling us this information to scare us, but no one has any narratives about what's going on in the world. Or even if we, they do, we can't trust them. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space? The virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to the subversive therapist. I'm Andrew Archer. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, today, I'm going to play for you a series of online lectures that I did for an agency. So we kind of edited and blended these together. And I want to start with a quote that I cite in the lecture so you have that. Uh, the slide is titled The Modern World. And I'm using a quote from the book Reparenting Schizophrenics by Childs Gowell. And that was published in 1979. And so it's a quote from one of the people at the Cathexis Institute, this residential, um, pretty outside-the-box thinking uh, therapy milieu uh, in the 1970s, because I think the quote really reflects what most of us are actually experiencing currently, which says something about our culture, and I talk about that a little bit in the clip. So here's the, the quote from this person that's in treatment. I've been scared of everything and everybody. I've had times when I found I had done things that I had no sense or memory of doing. I've lost track of me. It seemed like I spread out all over and what's left breaks up. I find I don't have any armor for the barrage of noise and sights and it seems my feelings with equal force bombarded me from inside. I get lost. I don't know many people. I don't know how to take care of myself. So that's what you'll hear, and then hopefully some new information in there, a little bit about Burns' life and some other things, but take a listen. Thanks. So the title of this lecture is I'm Okay, You're Okay, an introduction to transactional analysis, and I got a, an old picture of a couple of my kids uh, there, and the idea of I'm Okay, You're Okay is the philosophy of transactional analysis. It's not a disease-based model of uh, mental health saying fundamentally uh, we're fine. The issue is we were uh, programmed as little kids to operate in a certain way uh, based on our parental figures and human nature uh, you develop a sense of lack or not being good enough or not being okay. Uh, so I'm going to run through uh, kind of an introduction to transactional analysis, introduce the personality structure, which I think is um, 
one of the most pioneering or important features of transactional analysis, which comes out of the mid-20th century. Uh, but first, I want to just kind of introduce myself. Uh, my full-time position is a psychotherapist in private practice. I started Minnesota Mental Health Services in August of 2017, but I had been working in pri private practice for a few years uh, before that. And transactional analysis is what I've kind of landed on the last four or five years as a treatment modality because it works best for the clients. Uh, that's the feedback I get. It's much more effective than other therapies and it doesn't have this um, frame of reference where I'm the, the healer, the person needs to be healed. Again, it's this idea of I'm okay, you're okay. So it's really a teacher-student relationship that I've developed with clients and we can talk a little bit more about that. One of the most exciting things I'm doing is teaching meditation at a local childcare center here in Mankato. That's been going on for about two years. Um, and it started out with the leadership team uh, at the childcare center and then it evolved into a preschool classroom that my son is in and now I'm even working with toddlers. Anybody with kids knows that four-year-olds, it's all ego. It's want, want, want. You can't give them everything they want. So uh, it's a challenge, you know, working with these kids, but I'm, I'm developing these real deep connections with them. Uh, and with the toddlers, of course, the connection is largely nonverbal. These are uh, pre-egogic, is how you could think of them. Another challenge. Uh, in a way compared to the, the kind of wildness of uh, the preschool kids. So there's, a, there's an article in the online magazine for Cultivate. That's the picture of myself and my daughter from last fall. And I'll share some links of these things that I'm talking about in the chat at the end so you can have access to them if you're uh, interested. So I've come to really just think of myself as a meditation instructor. So when I'm teaching meditation, I'm actually using the framework of transactional analysis in terms of the personality structure, meaning what's going on inside of our head, which the, the theory goes that we're constantly just shifting in and out of states of mind. You know, we're either going inside or overly focused outside. You know, it's too loud or it's too bright outside, you know. Uh, but the objectivity of what's known as the adult ego state is basically mindfulness, uh, self-awareness, uh, being in the present. And so we'll talk kind of about that. So these, there's, this, um, there's this synergetic relationship between my understanding of transactional analysis and my understanding of Zen Buddhism, which I started training uh, in 2009. And since then, since then, I've had a meditation practice and I've taught meditation in a lot of different areas, including uh, the Wisconsin prison system, working with people in solitary confinement. That might be another uh, lecture in the future if you want to learn about that. So one last thing about what I do uh, when I'm meeting with a client, uh, in addition to teaching them transactional analysis, I'm teaching them meditation. And it's a Zen form of meditation. Zazen is the Japanese word uh, that means just sitting. So it is not a real complicated process. You don't need a Headspace app. All you need is a place to sit where you can uh, be still. And there's a certain posture for that that I teach people. Um, and 
the other thing I do with all of my therapy clients is I prescribe this book by Thomas Harris. It's from 1967. Um, it's a layperson guide to transactional analysis, but it kills two birds with one stone because I want my clients to start uh, being in reality, not turning inwards, not overly analyzing what's happening, but be able to be mindful and aware in the present moment, objectively processing information. And so with reading a book, you have to put your attention there. It's not gonna grab it like Facebook and Snapchat. And I bring this up just because the clients of mine that read this book, which is not a super easy book, and the ones that develop a meditation practice just get better on, uh, with that alone, with, with basically no intervention in psychotherapy. And it's the, really the thesis of Harris's book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, is that we have to free up this adult ego state, basically uh, having more self-awareness, being more mindful, thinking about our own thinking, not just reacting, you know, responding. Uh, I have these three little kids, and if I said everything that came up in my head, I mean, there'd be a lot of problems. So you have to be able to examine uh, that conditioning, which is ultimately from our parent figures, which is siphoned off from the culture we live in. Okay, so before we jump into transactional analysis, I want to share this quote. Uh, and the quote is really about uh, a sense of fragmentation, uh, not knowing oneself, uh, feeling lost, feeling really dissociated and, and bombarded by stimuli. And this is actually a quote from an uh, individual that was diagnosed with schizophrenia in the 1970s. Um, this author did an ethnographic study of this institute where they were practicing transactional analysis and, and doing a lot of out-of-the-box things because they were dealing with people uh, that basically the medical, uh, mental health kind of um, establishment was unable to take care of. They couldn't do anything. They're sort of the worst of the worst. And my point here being is that as we accelerate into this modern world, I, I think a quote like this actually resonates with most people. And so what does that say if we're all uh, experiencing this kind of schizophrenia, uh, which means split mind? Um, what's real, what's not real? You know, uh, the media keeps telling us this information to scare us, but no one has any narratives about what's going on in the world. Or even if we, they do, we can't trust them. Uh, it reminds me of Adam Curtis's documentary, Hypernormalization, where he looks at uh, Russia in the mid 20th century, uh, where everybody knew the politicians were lying and everybody knew what was, ha what was being said was happening was not actually real. And so that's obviously not good for us psychologically to live in a kind of meaningless society where there aren't any narratives about the future. The future is basically um, gone in a sense. Uh, and so I just want to, again, relay that you know, my understanding is both from a social political one, but also from a personal one, because I'm learning about transactional analysis by watching three little kids develop a personality. So I'm studying this stuff and kind of superimposing it on them, and it makes perfect sense to me. And again, like I said, my clients uh, really like this process, and for just about all of them, it's brand new. Okay, so transactional analysis is really about 
controlling yourself uh, and not uh, trying to control other people, uh, but dealing with interpersonal um, issues. And the idea of the personality structure that we'll get into is, is based on um, the fact that you can observe people shifting in and out of states of mind. You can observe yourself experiencing these different uh, states of mind. Um, and so it's not just a kind of insight-oriented therapy. It's an active process to figure out, you know, how are you conditioned as a kid? I mean, what kind of parenting would lead to a trajectory of where you're at? Uh, one of the things that, that comes out of classic alcoholic family systems is that the people are trained uh, not to think. There's a, an injunction, meaning just a negation of activity, that you don't think. So when you're not working, you're drinking. So you drink rather than thinking and educating yourself uh, and working on yourself, that kind of thing. So there's uh, this, this three, uh, these three ego states that make up uh, the personality structure, and that's what I want to talk about today. And so TA is really about figuring out and predicting what's going to happen based on your history within different relationships, uh, what is likely uh, to take place in the future. So in the beginning stages of transactional analysis, you study what goes on inside your head. And um, what I've understood from it, and, and again, understanding from my own kids, is that there's a voice in your head that is basically your parents or your parent figures. Their attitudes, their beliefs, their behaviors that they programmed you into. For me, a lot of it came out of uh, the Catholic Church and the beliefs about Catholicism, like don't have sex before marriage was something that was explicitly said in my family system. So when I can understand that the voice in my head sounds more like my dad, for example, or more like my mom, I know that's the parent state. And it's a it's a protective state of mind. We'll, we'll talk about it in a moment here. Uh, and that's different than what they call the child state, which is basically the little version of me, uh, all the memories, the feelings, the, uh, the issues that came up, uh, you know, kind of identity creation is the child state. And, and that's largely uh, below conscious awareness. So with transactional analysis, you're trying to figure out you know, what are what is that core material is what Ron Kurtz calls it. What is that, that stuff that's really driving all of your behavior? Because the child state is archaic. It's from when you were very little. But there's this other state of mind that is not conditioned. It's called the adult state, which again is just being in the moment, objectively processing information. It deals with the, the here and now. Uh, it's rational. It's sort of emotionless, and that's the, the state of mind that I train my clients to access and put their energy into with meditation. Because when you meditate, you have pictures in your head, you have a voice that's often critical of what you're doing, and you notice that, you let it go, and you come back to your, your breath, you come back to reality. Okay, so Eric Byrne developed uh, transactional analysis. He ran weekly seminars with other clinicians. He, he has a tremendous amount of writing um, that he did. He's actually born in Canada. Uh, he was in the US Army 
as a psychiatrist, you know, he's a medical um, physician, but, you know, largely unknown until he uh, published, I believe it was his fourth book, uh, Games People Play, in 1964. This was meant to be a book for clinicians, and what happened is it had this mass market appeal, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for something like 101 weeks, uh, so it really, you know, put him on the map. He unfortunately died uh, at 60 years old from a heart attack. His father also died young at 38 from tuberculosis. Um, so he's, he's written uh, a number of books. He was in private practice. He worked in hospitals. He consulted. I mean, uh, the guy was a machine, which probably led to him having a heart attack. Um, <clears throat> the, like I was saying, transactional analysis is about predicting human behavior, human destin destiny. And one of the things that um, Byrne developed was this theory of a life script, uh, an unconscious or pre-conscious life plan. And the idea is that when you're about five or six years old, you make a decision about your life. You know, most kids have an idea about what they want to do when they grow up, police officer, fireman, veterinarian, nurse, that kind of thing. But they're also deciding about who they're going to be, who other people are, and how they're supposed to live their life. Uh, and so these decisions are often kind of absolutes, like I'm never going to do this or I'm always going to do that. For me, it was I was never going to be like my dad. I wasn't going to turn out like him. And I, can, <laughs> I could bore you with the details of how similar I am to him now. Uh, so that you're following this script. I think the easiest way to think about it is if anybody's seen the Jim Carrey uh, movie, The Truman Show, uh, he's adopted... Uh, before he's even born by this TV, uh, this television corporation that has a, a basically a reality show of his life, but he thinks uh, he's just a normal person, uh, but he's following a script because everything is manufactured for him. So in a similar way, we think we're making all these choices ourselves. I'm going to be a psychotherapist or I'm going to be a meditation instructor, but actually it's based on these early decisions and we're essentially like a kind of uh, a wind-up doll. But of, of course, the culture says, no, you're autonomous, free will. And, and this method really kind of pops that, that bubble, that illusion of total kind of uh, autonomy that most of it is programmed externally, in, including, again, from uh, the culture. So there's these real detailed methods. Uh, and again, we'll just get into the personality structure. Uh, today, but once you do the structural analysis in terms of the voices in your head, your personality, you start to analyze what happens between you and other people. You figure out the habits, you figure out the games uh, that you play that perpetuate this script, that move you along this script to this kind of final ending. And I should say, uh, the script isn't about you know what you're going to eat for lunch uh, today. It's things like time of death type of death, you know, suicide, uh, mental illness, you know, hospitalization, divorce, number of kids, you know, things like that. But if you can help a client, and there are techniques for this with TA, to figure out, you know, where are you likely to go? What's your trajectory based on how your grandparents lived, how your parents lived, these games that you play, you can actually get out in front of that and, and what they say is flip the script. 
Um, <clears throat> I'd like to say kind of more about that, but I think with time I'll leave it um, there. It's very, very much a behavioral and analytical approach uh, to therapy where the, where the therapist is in a position to teach the client to, for them to teach themselves about these things. Okay, so the personality structure is based on three ego states. Um, the idea, you know, isn't new. It wasn't new when it came out about ego states, but ego states are, you know, the, f the feelings and, and thinking patterns of specific um, states of mind that you can observe uh, behaviorally. You can figure out. And so the transactional analysis therapist is, is paying attention very closely to changes in tone of voice, uh, body language, body posture, uh, things like this to, to notice when the client is shifting in and out of these states of mind, which is normal and natural from this uh, theory's perspective. So the idea of a, a multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, that's just an extreme version about what's normal uh, for all of us. Because the, the thing is, it seems like there's a, an Andrew, you know, right at the center of my skull, behind my eyes, that is the experiencer of experience, what's happening. But as you study uh, your mind, you realize that it's these three different pe people, at least three different people. And they outline that as the parent, adult, and child. And so the child ego state is the first uh, state of mind to uh, sort of evolve because and a newborn baby doesn't even know that they're separate uh, from everything in the world. So they don't see themselves as an, as an object that's separate from what's happening. So they don't have the analytical skills or the rationality of the parent and the adult state. So this is the first uh, state of mind uh, to develop. Now, with, with the parent ego state, uh, it's a defensive posture. So think about you know crossing your arms and furrowing your brow and, and maybe picture the, the political party you really uh, dislike. This is what, when I talk to preschool kids, uh, the parent is grumpy pants. It's like, we're, you know, for me, it's when I'm rushing out the door in the morning trying to get to work, trying to load up the kids uh, in the car. It's a, it's a very analytical state of mind, uh, but it can be critical or nurturing. So all of these states of mind have their uh, their issues. They're not just one is good and the other one is bad kind of thing. Um, what do you say to children, you know, if they're if they're running by a swimming pool, you say walk, please. You know, that's a nurturing statement versus don't run, you know, is a critical statement. So the parent ego state is really about um, raising children, caretaking. Uh, and if you don't uh, pay attention to your mind at all and you had a kid tomorrow, you would just raise them in the way your parents raised you. Uh, because this is a, a copied version, a borrowed version of your parents' uh, beliefs, their attitudes, the way they did things. And with the theory, the idea is that you get the parent ego state from the same sex parent. Now obviously gender is fluid. We understand that now. They didn't understand that in the mid 20th century. but I can relate to like my child ego state seems much more similar to my mom, my parent ego state much more similar to my dad. So these are all just ways of understanding these things. Um, now the adult state is about reality testing. 
So even though this is a different kind of diagnostic method than let's say the, the DSM or the psychiatric um, labels, categories, you can understand those things in the same way. For example, uh, if somebody comes in with a, in a psychotic episode, a psychotic state, you know, they don't know if voices are coming from outside their head or inside their head, the adult state makes that distinction between inside and outside objectively, so it's reality testing. When you've went without sleeping for a couple weeks, that adult state doesn't work. Uh, just like it doesn't work very well when you drink a bunch of alcohol. Your judgment is impaired if you try to drive a car. That's the um, adult state. And, you know, in terms of human nature, the personality structure, you know, the, the child ego state wants to play, it wants to connect. Uh, it's, it's the strongest part of the personality, so it's to influence and connect with people uh, in order to play. And I think working, uh, learning and play are, are fundamental and of course right now in the modern world we're working excessively probably not learning enough and you know playing on this device is not the kind of play I'm talking about with other people uh, relaxed you know joyful that kind of thing okay so just as a way to to kind of memorize or or think about this personality structure more um, you know, the, the phenomenological experience of these states of mind, which is always subjective, you know, and that's why it's in the client's hands to, to figure this stuff out and start learning about it, but then the characteristics and the functions. So even though Byrne didn't think of these as phenomenon, he thought of them as actual people with identities inside your head, you can think of the parent state as moralizing. So what happened during the, the COVID uh, pandemic, you had people saying, you should wear a mask, or you shouldn't wear a mask, or you should get vaccinated, or you shouldn't get vaccinated. That's what they were thinking was right or wrong. You know, and the parents say, is this prejudicial black and white, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Um, versus uh, the adult state is just mindful, is objective, doesn't have a clue about what's right or wrong. It's just talking about, you know, my mouth gets a little bit drier as I talk more, you know, I can feel the temperature in the room, you know, the heart rate gets a little elevated when I'm doing kind of public speaking things. So that's the adult, it's objective. It's not about right and wrong, good and bad. And then the child ego state, I think most of us, if you drive a car, have experienced, you know, going through uh, a town, you know, on a road trip or something and you pass through, you know, or you pass through St. Peter or Eagle Lake or something, you're like, wow, who was riding, who was driving the car through Eagle Lake? Because I wasn't there, I was turned inward, I was fantasizing about something or I was rehashing a, a memory. So that's the child state is this internal mind and you get, excuse me, mesmerized by your own thinking. So the parent state is more this outside mind. Look at those, you know, crazy people that are, are not wearing masks or whatever the idea of the moralizing is. Look at that, that political party. That's an outside mind. The child state is inside. Now I have, I have a three-year-old and he's just starting to actually be thinking internally. Everything is brain to tongue. You know, there's no internal process. And so that's, uh, that's the child state. And we can think of the characteristics and the functions. The characteristics are three Ps. Like I said, the parent is about caregiving. 
in that state of mind, it's a conservation of energy. So when I'm taking care of uh, my three ki kids, they're all five and under, you only need one parent ego state. Uh, so, so a lot of times at night when it's my wife and myself, I'll just play with the kids because this idea of right and wrong and what kind of caregiving, you know, you just bump heads. It creates separation. Um, but the function of that parent state is to control. You know, when I'm teaching my son to ride a bike, I'm saying, dude, you got to stop at the stop sign. <laughs> you got to look both ways when you cross so that as he gets older, he learns how to ride a bike. He stops at a stop sign and the voice in his head that says to stop, he thinks that's his own voice. But with this theory, what it's saying is, no, you've been conditioned that way. And of course, there's all kinds of other cultural conditioning um, in the parent state. Um, but then in contrast with the adult, it is about choice. What am I going to pay attention to? You know, as you're listening to this lecture, you got pictures in your head, different thoughts, uh, ideas, voices. And if you can maintain that objectivity being in the moment, then there's a lot more possibility of what's going on for you. Okay, lastly, like I was saying, little kids, especially two, three-year-olds, if, you, if you're around them, they don't just sit back like this, right? They want to be touching you. They want to they, they, uh, reach out their foot with their toes. They're not even necessarily aware of it. They always want that connection uh, with you. So the child state, you know, Burns said it could be a heaven or a hell, just like a little kid can be very charming or they can be manipulative and they can be self-destructive. We all have this... Uh, tendency towards self-destructive behavior. You know, it's not like anybody smokes cigarettes these days and, and doesn't know that they cause cancer. You know, it's that we crave and we want things. And I know this from a developmental perspective, not from anything I learned in school, but from watching these kids and working with them at about 16 months, they start grabbing for stuff and they say, gimme. They say, mine. Uh, and in Zen Buddhism, they talk about that as greed. And craving is that human nature we want for ourselves and of course that creates problems uh, creates competition uh, that the child state is basically you know two sides is either this connection or competition and that's where the psychological games are played from is like you manipulate other people you have these ulterior motives that aren't uh, disclosed okay another short version you know the parent is a having mode because like I have these ideas for myself uh, it's about knowing uh, to a degree like I know this stuff about transactional analysis so it's not like I have to read notes or I have to think all that much about it because I talk to people about it every day uh, but it feels like you have these strong beliefs but actually that state of mind was conditioned you know by your parental figures the adult state is just being right here right now this is what i instruct people uh, to work on of course but then the child st state is this gimme mine mine it's a it's a wanting uh based on a sense of lack so if you're okay i'm okay you're okay that philosophy of ta then you're not necessarily craving or wanting because the things we want we think will resolve our sense of lack or our not okayness or our not good enough ideas but money, sex, fame, it doesn't matter. There's always that part of you that wants more. Um, Freud talked about it as, as drives, the sex drives, death drives, and this compulsion to repeat uh, things based on craving.
Okay, so I gave you all the complicated <laughs> descriptions of these things. The simple version is there's a teacher in our head and a student. So the teacher, you know, was programmed externally, you know, and we know things, whether it's from your job or your studies or different things. Everybody that you encounter knows things. Uh, they know it from their their specific cultural background, but they know these things. That's the parent and to some extent the adult. And we all have a part of us that's curious and creative and spontaneous. Again, I think the modern world is, uh, we're outsourcing that to, to machines. So we aren't using intuition. Like my, my five-year-old this morning is asking me to look up the weather on the app, of course, is pouring uh, right now, but he's afraid there's going to be a tornado and a storm. Uh, so you can look it up online and get more information, but then you can think, well, maybe the app is wrong. Or maybe, you know, the information doesn't, doesn't lessen the anxiety. But, but little kids, I, I've, I've noticed, will, you know, they'll walk outside and they'll go, you know, I think it's going to snow today. You know, and they're not necessarily right, but they're using their full body, their, all the senses in their body to make some conjecture, some guess about what's going to happen. Okay, so that's the, the student. Uh, and this is also from uh, coming out of Zen, this idea of teacher-student uh, relationships. So uh, lastly, I just want to talk about one other aspect of transactional analysis that I've found to be extremely useful. Uh, we're all familiar with the term codependency, where people can't be a full person without someone else. Uh, and so this, this uh, little illustration is about symbiosis, which is very close to the idea of codependency. Symbiosis means uh, two organisms operating based on mutual needs. So the easiest example is a mother and a newborn infant. The infant is completely dependent on the mother in that oral stage when they're nursing. And of course the infant doesn't have an adult state, doesn't have a parent state. The adult starts to form when they have locomotion. So when they're crawling, moving about, you know, six, eight months, that kind of thing. They certainly don't have a parent state in terms of morals and, and you know, subjectivity. They, they don't know that they're separate from everything else that's happening. Okay, so in that relationship, there's obviously two people. There's the mom and there's the baby. But there's, it's not really like two people because of this, this dependency between them. The infant can't survive without stroking, without affection, certainly the basic biological needs as well. So it's completely dependent on the, the parent. So it's, it's one in a sense, but obviously it's not one because there's two people there. So uh, in a relational sense, it's, it's what they say in Taoism, is not two, not one. There's a two-ness to this relationship, uh, but there's a oneness, and it's, it's neither one of those. So symbiosis, what happens is you have only three ego states operating between two people. So the mother is analyzing, and she's making probability assessments. Okay, the baby ate at 8 a.m. Are they going to need to eat again at 10? Do they need a new diaper? How long was their nap? And, and I'm not saying they don't play with the kid and they're not ever expressing the child part of them, but especially in those early weeks, it's much more energy in the parent and the adult because <laughs> uh, you have to make sure the baby survives. I mean, that's the only thing in about that first year of life. So what we have is a parent and adult, those are the dashed lines uh, for the mother, 
and just the child ego state operating uh, for the infant. So we have one, two, three ego states, even though between two people, it's six ego states. And of course, this symbiosis uh, eventually uh, phases out, right? Because the infant individuates, the, or the baby, the child, begins to think for themselves and separates from the mom. So it's a temporary thing, but that temporary nature of it makes it passive. Um, it's, it's love. I mean, it's the purest form of love because there's no script, there's no conditioning. It's this one beautiful unit happening. But unless that individuation happens, the, you know, the infant's going to be in college and still breastfeeding. That's going to be problematic. That's passive. I mean, I'll give you a more uh, concrete example. Uh, my wife and I recently switched diets to a plant-based diet and she it was she watched this documentary and got into it so she's like i'm gonna buy all this food i'm gonna meal prep i'm gonna do all this stuff which means i don't have to think about it at all i get to be the little infant now does that mean i'm ever going to get good at meal planning and setting up a, a grocery list no but i don't care because i'll eat anything i'm not real picky about eating but th this idea is different from codependency is that if you can be in symbiotic relationships uh, that's great for cooperation that's love but it's also uh, passive if you're not consciously aware of it obviously the mother knows that the infant's eventually going to grow up it's a temporary situation it's also a symbiotic process in terms of therapy because that child ego state is basically about self-disclosure uh, in terms of the therapeutic uh, alliance and many therapists don't share that stuff about themselves. They're more sober and you know guarded about that information. So then what happens is, is most of uh, the interactions, the client is speaking from the, the child part and not thinking uh, analytically or rationally about what's going on because the therapist does that for them. Now, that's not necessarily problematic if you're both consciously aware of it and you know it's a temporary um, arrangement. So now if we use this uh, mother-infant as the example of when two people become one, now think of the person on the left as a, uh, a sober person within an intimate uh, relationship and the one on the right is the alcoholic. So what happens typically in terms of this uh, dysfunction is that the quote-unquote alcoholic is very egocentric and selfish. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to drink all day. I'm not going to help with the kids or, you know, do any of these things. And the other person, I mean, this is much closer to codependency. They, you know, clean up after their messes, you know, literally and figuratively, they pick them up from jail, the DUI, you know, bring them to treatment. And so there, so there's this dependency contract. And, and for, for some people in that sober uh, position, it actually protects them because they don't want to access that child state there's a lot of fear or other things so they can maintain uh, this this symbiotic process because it sort of works for them in a way the other interesting thing about transactional analysis and I'll close here is Byrne said you know for some people obviously it's problematic if you drink if you're drinking you know brandy at 8 o'clock in the morning but he said most quote-unquote alcoholics the issue is they keep playing these games with people and keep creating problems at work, at school, interpersonally, and that you can study those interactions and liberate them, find different ways of structuring their time. So it's not necessarily 
abstinence is what cures the alcoholic from his point of view. And he said at the time, you know, 60 years ago, it might be a brain-based issue. It might be a genetic issue. But regardless of if that's the case, the person needs to learn to socialize and needs to learn to drink socially, not causing all these messes. And he has, you know, elaborations on this game, alcoholic, uh, that he talks about. So again, that was a blend of some online uh, lectures that I did recently. Hope you got something out of it, enjoyed it. Again, I'm the Subversive Therapist. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.